I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds. I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. You accept? Don't accept, accept. I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Welcome to 80 Days, an exploration podcast. Brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon, this podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me today are... Joe Byrne in Byrne, Switzerland. And Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And today, for the season finale of our first season, we're going to do something a little bit different and look at a place that doesn't exist anymore, Kowloon Walled City. Once the most densely populated place on the planet, this unique, untamable settlement existed in Hong Kong. Growing up from a military settlement, which was originally built to demarcate the border between the British and Chinese-controlled areas in the territory, it grew in size and scope to become a tightly packed labyrinth of illegal activity and squalor, unregulated by either the Chinese or British governments. At its peak, over 30,000 people lived in the walled city, resulting in a population density of approximately 1.2 million inhabitants per square kilometer, or 3.25 million per square mile. It was demolished in 1994, shortly before China retook control of Hong Kong, but has since become a cultural touchstone, a fascinating example of what humanity can become when allowed to run unchecked. Joe, uh, I think you're going to tell us a little bit about our early history of the Kowloon Wall City and where it came from. Yeah, well, I, I'm going to start with the first time this, this place appears on the radar, uh, which is all the way back in the Song Dynasty, which is like the 900s to 1100s. And at this point, it was just a, a salt trade outpost, little little harbour down in uh, down in, in Canton province or Guangdong province, where, where salt was traded. And that, that was the only real thing going on there. It wasn't that important. But the name does come from this era as well. Um, so in 1278, the boy emperor Bing, who was the last uh, the last Song emperor, fled to, to this part of China because the Mongols were taking over the country. And the, his empire was shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. He was an, uh, an eight-year-old boy and he was crowned on, uh, he was crowned emperor on Lantau Island, which is where the Airport is today, right? Uh, airport, yeah, and uh, the Big Buddha, yeah. which is uh, one of the big tourist attractions in Hong Kong. Yeah, it's a, uh, and also Disneyland is there right now. Sure, yeah. So, so yeah. he was he was crowned there, and um, the the name of of the, the this region comes from his observation. He was out one day and he noticed there were eight giant mountains around, and he called it Eight Dragons, which is uh, Batlung. But a clever courtier pointed out that. The emperor himself was also a dragon, hence there were nine dragons. Also, uh, the, the emperor was also eight. Uh, <laughs> so, he was eight. So all this sounds like very mystical. <laughs> You're a dragon. But this is the ramblings of some dumb punk kid who yeah. did such a terrible job governing his, uh, his massive empire that the Mongols uh, just basically ate it up. Hey, Genghis uh, Khan was a good... A good warlord, like he knew what he was at. Yeah, but versus an eight-year-old, uh, are those mountains dragons? To, sure, they to, are. To, to be fair, he, he'd he'd killed some adult emperors first. Uh, this guy good. was just the, the, like the end of the line. Uh, so I yeah, like the, so this this nine dragons is is what uh, Gaolong is the Cantonese for nine dragons, or Jolong in in Mandarin. Gao is nine. Yeah, and when the British arrived, they heard Gaolong as Kowloon, and that's where. The name comes from. It was first fortified in 1668, uh, so there's really not a lot of information about what happened. The, the place that would later become the Walled City was a signal station on the coast to uh, communicate with boats coming in and out of the harbour. Um, we should probably actually give a little bit of a just a very brief lesson. overview of the geography. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Kowloon, as it as it's known now, as, I suppose as it, as it was known at the time, is the area of land that attached to mainland China, like Hong Kong itself is an island uh, that lies just off the coast of China uh, across a very, very small harbour. Across the harbour is the Kowloon Peninsula, 
Yes. I think that's what it's called, right? Yeah. The harbor is what Hong Kong is named after. I think it's Fragrant Harbor or something like mm-hmm. that. But the uh, Hong Kong itself is an island, and then the territory, the area of the ter- territory that's connected to the mainland uh, across the harbor is called Kowloon, uh, which is where I am right now, incidentally. And in, in modern day, the special, the special administrative re- region is Kowloon plus uh, Hong the Kong. island. Yeah, that yeah. all of that is regarded as plus quite a bit more called the new territories. Uh, yeah, but yeah, there's a, a a rough border between uh, the new territories, which are north of Kowloon and mainland China itself. The border isn't isn't that far from where you live, right, Luke? Uh, no, it's about a maybe thirty minutes from where I live. I guess it's Hong Kong is a very very small hmm. territory. Okay, so. Uh, as we say that this is all in the Pearl River Delta and there's lots of shipping goes on around here the place looks like it's basically a a submerged volcanic range so like it's quite a dramatic looking part of the world where where the islands come up out straight out of the sea and are covered in kind of tropical vegetation so it's it's cool but it's also risky to to navigate so a signal station was established for that reason I'd imagine uh, but as I say, I don't know a lot about 1668. It just keeps cropping up in things I read. Um, by 1810, we get a description of the fort there as being a small, miserable fort. Uh, and I've, I've drawn a lot of these quotes from a, an, a, an article from in, in 1987 issue of the Journal of the Royal Asiatic Society, Hong Kong branch, which gives a good background of uh, of the early history of the Wall City. And that was written while it still existed. And so this small miserable fort is is there to um, keep an eye on the barbarians who are operating in the area, and it gets a bit beefed up around this era because, um, well, the, the the British are coming. The British are oh, coming. Yeah. The British are coming. Oh, oh yeah. So, um, cue the British. Um, Not the British. The British, <laughs> the British have done a lot of. Pretty shady stuff in their time, and we were looking at some of the other other uh, uh, some of their other ventures, including you know po- poisoning poisoning wells and things like that, and real real classy stuff. I think the Opium Wars, which is what we're I'm about to talk to talk about, it, it ranks pretty highly in some of the most evil stuff they've ever done. Mark, I remember going to the museum in Hong Kong, and yeah. there's a whole section on the Opium War. You're just kind of going. I like I like it now. I like Hong Kong now. Yeah. But dear lord, <laughs> yeah. this is not a glorious way to found a colony. Oh. This oh, is no. essentially it, Britain being kind of a glorified just, drug dealer yeah. at, at this point. Cuz uh, I think it's terrible. it's fair to say modern Hong Kong is a lot slicker and and shinier than modern mainland China like to a western eye anyway. Yeah, but, it's, uh, I mean, for a, lot, for a lot of people, it's a kind of confluence of East and West. It, it, yeah. it looks very much like a Western city in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah. And obviously, English is very pre- prevalent here as well. But the Kowloon Wall City is kind of an example of the worst uh, parts of Hong Kong uh, and the worst that, I guess, sprung up because of the Opium Wars in, it's just, in a it's lot just of ways. The, it's just the worst foundation myth a place could have and then that place to actually turn out fine. Okay, so so to go into it, firstly, opium. Uh, it's basically smokable heroin. Uh, you mix it with tobacco, and apparently it's very addictive. Um, England, uh, Britain at the time, had an imbalance of trade with China. China was producing silk and tea and all these fantastic things that the British public loved. And... The British weren't really producing much that the Chinese public wanted. So every time Britain wanted to buy some tea, buy some silk, uh, they had to pay in cash. And this is called an imbalance of trade. Britain would have Mm. preferred to pay in, you know, industrially created teapots or mass-produced watches or whatever it was their their factories. Bearing in mind this is the time of the Industrial Revolution, uh, cotton and, and all these textiles they were producing. They would have preferred to just trade materials with materials. And as it was, Britain was going broke because all their cash was going to China. Britain did have one thing that the Chinese liked a great deal. That was opium. Bear in mind again, this is smokable heroin. So, uh... So judgmental, Mark. 
Britain tried for a very long time to uh, increase the the amount of opium going into China and China, at least the administrators of China, had a bit of a problem with that because it was essentially ruining their populations with uh, with with addiction. This was coming from Afghanistan or India, right? Is that uh, India? Was? I think Afghanistan only took over production later on. Okay. Actually, more more than but, the 1900s. But, but, but from from other British colonies, basically. Absolutely, from very close by British colonies. Um, and thus we had these opium wars where Britain. Uh, engaged in conflict with China, essentially trying to open up uh, and create a favorable uh, trade situation for them to plow in very expensive opium and to, to extract value from, from the Chinese empire. Uh, the first opium war was between 1839 and 1842, so only about uh, uh, three, four years long. Um, it started down to a, a hard line, uh, I, I think he was a governor or an advisor locally in, in the Canton region, and he confiscated huge amounts of opium. Uh, they decided that this opium uh, trade was terrible and they had to ban it, and they confiscated it, burnt it, and the Brits obviously saw their, uh, saw, saw their in. In one side, they, you know, they could claim that their, their materials had been destroyed. There was also an issue with some of the sailors had been arguably imprisoned, um, kidnapped even, and they sent out an expeditionary force, which included 15 barracks ships, which is basically just ships loaded up with troops, uh, four steam-powered gunboats, 25 small boats, and a boat called the Nemesis, um, a.k.a. Devil Ship. Uh, as it became known to the Chinese, that's a badass name for a for a ship. It was the fir- the first British ironclad vessel, and it had rocket launchers and two thirty two pounder guns. Um, <laughs> so this was, uh, you know, it's it's bringing a gun to a knife fight, basically. They, yes, they so the, there was them. there was military imbalance in this huge war. military imbalance, and what they then did was just marauded up and down the coastline taking pretty much what they wanted they the the nemesis itself was able to sail up the uh the pearl river into uh guangzhou uh which i think was the capital of canton at the time uh they captured that seemingly without a great deal of issue very few uh casualties on the british side and then they started sailing up the chinese coast they took uh they took shanghai which if you look in the map is very far away from there but in about two months they were in shanghai they took shanghai sailed up the river and captured the capital of china which was at that time uh nanking or nanjing as it's also known they also in the process of sailing up the rivers they captured the imperial tax ships which was basically like emptying the wallet of the emperor right in the middle of a war so it it was just the most crushing humiliating defeat you could you could imagine yeah they just devastated china basically Hmm. and just a side note on the nemesis that boat i mentioned so i visited uh windsor castle in the uk recently and as i was wandering around the grounds uh you know trying to kick a corgi and uh find uh the queen's bra etc i found this cannon that was left out on the lawn and it had a plaque in it, which I'm going to read for you now. So this is about, about the canon. Spanish or Portuguese, dated 1652. Cast by Javanese at Macau in 1652. Captured from a Chinese war junk by the Honourable... Uh, probably should have had that in quotation marks. By the Honourable East India Company Steamer Nemesis. WH Hall, Commander, 1841. And I, I, I do remember reading again in that museum, there was a, like a quote from the House of Commons when they're like getting, getting Parliament's approval to have this war. You're going on, guys, this is, you're kind of saying we need our right to, you know, export opium into the Chinese empire. Like this, this is, it's disgraceful that China, that Qing China would be against us, uh, you know, giving opium to their, their peasants. Like what, what's wrong with Why these guys? Why won't you let us sell our drugs? 
<laughs> but at the same so... time, it there was like it was a debate in the British Parliament as yeah, well. It wasn't yeah. just that you know this is a universally good thing. They acknowledged the fact they were well aware of what they were doing, plowing opium into China yes. and ruining the lives of millions of people. But the winning side said things that you wouldn't expect politicians to say today, publicly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, so the the upshot of this was. Um, China was forced to pay reparations of 21 million silver dollars to the to the to the British and that that's a, that's a lot war. of silver dollars. Yeah, after losing a war and having most of their cities captured don't and devastated. Don't think that's a reparations meant to work. Um, um so so 1842 then is is when the Treaty of Nanking is signed and the island of Hong Kong is given to Britain, right? Yeah, that's it. So they're allowed to just, control point, this as their little trading outpost and military outpost. And there was a few other concessions, um, including opening up some uh, trade ports and basically just opening up China mm. to, to to trade, but really the opium trade. Because at, at this point, uh, the Qing dynasty had been very insular and inward looking. They were quite different to their to the previous dynasty. They, they wanted to kind of be a, an isolationist China. Um, yeah. And the British weren't having any of that. And you can kind of see that in, in how they acted. And how they acted led to, to a second opium war only about uh, 15 years later in 1857. But um, in this second war, it's a little, uh, it's, a bit, it's a bit messier to describe, so I'm not going to go into the details. 42 is the point when the wall was first built around the existing fort in Kowloon. Um, because obviously they've just given the invaders the keys to, to the next flat over. Um, so it's, it's time to put an alarm on the current, you know, on the, on the place you still own. Uh, so they build a wall, a wall around this fort. The assistant administrator of the Chinan province or Chinan County of of Canton province and the chief military commander of the district moved into the fort. And the um, the Yamen building that still stands in in the part in, in on the site today was the headquarters. And you had a garrison of about 150 troops moved in around that point. And it's important to note, I think here, Joe, just to, just to stress it again, that the British were just on Hong Kong Island at this time. So this is like Kowloon is still a part of China and is not a part of the Hong Kong territory. So Britain are just the British forces are essentially just sitting on an island just off the coast hmm. within within eyesight of uh, the the fort, I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, so. The fort this is, is the interface. a strategic point at which, yeah, at which they they'll attempt to block any British incursion into China. So the Governor General um, described this place for the first time as a, a Tsengzai, which is a walled city, is how we translate it. But um, maybe settlement or, or fort might be a better word. But this is the word that's still used to this day. I've just got a quote here from that 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 uh, paper um, describing the the base, which is meant to be a, have a constraining effect on the barbarians, as they call the British, um, which is kind of nice to hear uh, the other side well, of a, a culture. They could just call them total dicks yeah. and they'll be pretty much right in the money. So it was described as follows. It was built of granite ashlar facing 15 foot in width at the top and average 13 foot in height. There were six watchtowers and four gateways with doors of wood lined with iron sheeting. Officially, the main gate was the South Gate, over which the four characters Gaolung Taiteng, uh, which means Kowloon Wall City, were engraved. But it seems that the East Gate, which opened onto the marketplace, saw the most traffic. These giant characters um, were actually unearthed when they demolished the uh, city, and they're now on, on display in the park, yeah, so- which is on the site. Skipping ahead slightly, I guess that's that's uh, what is on the site of the former Wall City now is a is a park, very nice park actually. And yeah, as you mentioned, Joe, there's a few uh, a small few parts of the yeah a few relics uh, of the Wall City itself that are still remaining that have been preserved. But for the most part, it's it's completely demolished. Like you wouldn't if you visited, you wouldn't know. Yeah, did you not read any of the signs that anything mm. like this had ever stood there? But, but but we'll get to what, what has been demolished. <laughs> um, we shall, we shall. And just a few other little things. They also built a school because they wanted to morally fortify the inhabitants against decadent Western influences and teach them kind of Confucianism and, and that kind of thing and stop them... All that good stuff. ...seeking opium as a lifestyle. 
<laughs> and there were no shops inside the walled city this time. They were all on a street leading from the East Gate to the coast, which is very nearby. Nowadays, this is quite far inland because of reclaimed land, but at this point, it was right on the waterfront. Just to cut back in, I guess what I'm trying to communicate in a general way is, so things were things were bad, the Brits were trying to push opium in, and then things got worse, the Brits absolutely smacked around the Chinese empire uh, with very few guys and in record time, uh, and then got open trade and Hong Kong and a base to now plow opium into China. Uh, and now things are about to get even worse because over about the, the 10, 15 years between the two opium wars, relations didn't improve at all, really, between uh, between the British and the Chinese because the Chinese felt so humiliated, they would pretty much at, at any opportunity try to disrespect or attack British uh, uh, traders. Um, and in the meantime, in what was... A, in retrospect, a very bad move. Uh, I believe they executed a, uh, a French missionary, uh, which became a cause célèbre in, uh, in, in France. And this led to the French and the British teaming up in 1857 to further knock seven shades of crap out of the Chinese. Basically, there, there was mitigating circumstances to this in, in why the battle went this, well, why the, why the war went this way, there was a, a civil war in China at the time. Mm. From 18, 1850 to 1864, the uh, Taiping Rebellion. Uh, which, which is mental. It, it is mental. Uh, very briefly, I think you did a bit of reading on this, Joe, but just to say, 20 million dead, and one of the guys thought he was Jesus' brother. Yes. Take it away, Joe. Well, that, that, like, what <laughs> remains to be said, it was, a, it was a civil war between the Qing dynasty and... The, what do they call it, like the Army of the Heavenly Kingdom or something, who, who were led oh. by a, a Chinese man who believed he was Jesus' younger brother. And they were kind of a somewhat Christian insurrection who wanted an outward-looking China. And I, I just need to read more about this because it sounds completely insane. Uh, Same for an upcoming episode, that, Joe. Yeah, it's all I got. But I, I, I want also, to know. Just to say, the when when the war started, the British were also dealing with a, a rebellion of their own in India, which is why I think the war was elongated as well as it, mm. as long as it was, because the British weren't really able to uh, uh, to commit to the uh, to the combat. They had a lot of troops in India at the time, but once that mutiny, the Indian mutiny, as it was known, uh, was put down, they moved all their troops to China, and things wrapped up pretty quickly. Uh, and they re- renegotiated another treaty with even worse terms. And now, as well as Hong Kong, they took uh, a large chunk of the Kowloon Peninsula. Not as far up as the Wall City, but getting closer and closer, encroaching further and further into what was Chinese uh, Qing Dynasty sovereign territory. This is up to Boundary Street, I think it's called today. Exactly. Um, yeah. And during that period, uh, the first people to invade the walled city were actually some of these uh, Taiping folks uh, and triads who were involved for some reason. Uh, and they, they occupied the uh, the city for a while, but the Chinese were eventually able to kick them out. The walled city, um, you mean, Joe? The walled city, yes, Kowloon walled city. Uh, but we're getting up to 1899 when I think there was perhaps another war of some sort. But well, th- there was... In, in the meantime, there was a bubonic plague outbreak in, in Hong Kong. Yeah. So the British were very keen to get a bit more, bit more living space, a bit more Lebensraum for the, uh, for their people. Oh, did I, did I say the German word? Oh, you, you, okay. you did. You did. <laughs> um, so that was that was the context of of where the the British mindset was going. They need more space. It's yeah. very very dense. We need to expand. So in in eighteen ninety eight ninety nine they have the second Peking Convention where they're given a 99-year lease on what's now called the New Territories. And that's a huge swath of land from halfway up the Kowloon Peninsula all the way to... Uh, what's the name of that city on the border, Luke? Shenzhen. Shenzhen. Shenzhen, yeah. yeah. Um, so they, they, it's, it's quite a large... Compared to Hong Kong Island, this is a massive swath of land. And it yeah, includes... I think it's four or five times the size of Hong Kong Island. Uh, hmm. So... Basically, they just sort of quadrupled the amount of territory that they controlled. And to this day, a lot of it is still reasonably unpopulated, right? 
Kowloon itself is the most populated area of Hong Kong, I think, and the most mm. kind of well, most developed. Hong Kong Island itself it's is quite sort of still quite mountainous in a lot of areas and stuff. But uh, yeah, the new territories is still very much being developed um, as today. There's a lot more space and a lot. It's a lot less densely populated than the other areas of Hong Kong. Yeah. So the walled city was within the remit of this new this new seeding of territory. Uh, but there was a clause in the treaty which said, within the city of Kowloon, the Chinese officials now stationed there shall continue to exercise jurisdiction, except so far as may be inconsistent with the military requirements for the defence of Hong Kong. So now you have like a little island. Of Chineseness. Yeah, it's a, it's a little island of China uh, within Britain's territory, which is a very, very strange scenario to be in, I'm sure. That was my first time hearing the wording. And like you can hear in that, that's pretty vague. Yeah, that's that's not stating the position in any very strong way. It's not. Very it, was, clear. It, was, it, was, it was a fig leaf. It was a, 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 you know, it was a fig leaf to the, the kind of dignity of the Chinese. But within less than a year. The British decided that the the governor of the walled city was um, Being a encouraging resistance to Being a total bollocks. Yeah, he was encouraging resistance to the British expansion into new territories, and he was kind of letting militias run out of his city, and so they pretty much expelled everyone with minimal resistance. Actually, it sounds like when the British turned up, most of the soldiers had already left. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, and those who were still there. We actually have a clip here, Joe. I'm just going to play it real okay, quick um, from a Wall Street Journal. YouTube documentary that you can you can find if you search for the uh, oh, this is Kowloon. this is Elizabeth Sin who who wrote this the is Elizabeth Sin yes uh, yeah, so she, I'm she, just going to let her speak here on this this scenario. One thing after another, the British decided that it was not a good idea to let the Kowloon Water City remain under Chinese jurisdiction. So despite the fact that the British forced the Chinese officials and the soldiers to leave, as far as the Beijing government was concerned, it had never agreed to this arrangement. But in fact, each sort of kept their hands off the place. See, what we're left with and what's key to understanding the Wall City is you have an administrative vacuum. Both the British and the Chinese claim it's theirs, but neither of them actually enforce any law or order or administration on it. So it's a, it's a very much a grey area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because neither want to push the issue too far. Yeah. Um, so gradually you get squatters returning with their livestock. You've got to remember a lot of it was kind of, it was just a fort at this point. It wasn't particularly dense. The Anglican church benefited a lot from the clearing of the population. It converted two local temples into chapels. That's a big win for Jesus there. It is. It is. <laughs> Red letter day for the J-man. <laughs> um, the, the government was only giving short-term leases and property because they weren't really sure where this whole place was going. So they were able to get leases on schools and, and they ran charities. There's a rock that is on the site today called the Kwong Yatsau Rock, which is um, remembering the, the Anglican reverend from this period. And it says on it, ever since 1890, Reverend Kwong of the Anglican Holy Trinity Church had continually set up inside the Wall City schools, free medical services and the Anglican Church almshouse, which was where it was kind of a home for the elderly. And he squeezed every bit of his own means to meet the food, accommodation and recreational needs of the poor people of all ages there. Reverend Kwong fully devoted himself to the walled city community till he passed away in 1921. So the, the, the religious were clearly an important part of the community that grew up around this kind of squatter's paradise. Uh, we'll take a quick break there and then come back with the Kowloon walled city in the 20th century. Okay, so in the 1900s, uh, the walled city basically just develops as it had been developing, as we, we said, kind of a grey area, sort of a, a squatter's haven, as I think you called it, Joe. Uh, and the place sort of slowly started to fall into disrepair. It wasn't being maintained by any military presence at this time and essentially just sort of was built up haphazardly. Uh, people would build homes and kind of just ramshackle buildings within the walls of the fort. Uh, there's one quote here from Elizabeth Sin, a historian who's studied extensively the, the walled city. It says, by the 1930s, the 60 or so domestic dwellings were mostly in poor repair. Its vegetable gardens, pig farms and traditional crafts gave the city a rural flavor. So that gives you a kind of an idea of what 
the city resembled at this point. It was sort of a disused military fort. You have the walls and you have like a few buildings, but for the most part, it's being farmed and just being squatted on by um, Chinese immigrants into Hong Kong. Because it was it was a cheap place to live. It was a very cheap place to live, and I mean, there's no kind of there's no rules, law. There's no, rent. There's no there's rule no of law. There's no, yeah. you know, it's 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 very much its own kind of universe almost within mm. uh, the walls of the of the city. But the the British didn't really want it there. Still, exactly. It was kind of a stain on on the on the territory. I suppose it was it was. I think we'll see this going forward more and more, but it just kind of became like a an embarrassment, like an eyesore almost, and a, an embarrassment. Yeah, just a haven for crime and a kip, a total kip. Yeah. Yes. So in 1933, they begin a second clearance attempt. Um, the 436 residents who were there at the time sought aid from the Chinese government because they claimed to rule the place, but it wasn't forthcoming again. Now in the 30s, China had a lot going on. Uh, politically and internally. Um, Being invaded so, by Japan among them. Um, yes, that was definitely one of them. And most private residences, of which there were about 60, were demolished during this period. So the place is pretty much carte blanche. And then you mentioned Japan, Mark. One of the darkest periods in, in Hong Kong's history, which we don't have time to go into, is the Japanese occupation in the 40s. Yeah, so the Japanese make their way to Hong Kong down through southern China and through the Canton region. And there's intense fighting there in 1941. Uh, Hong Kong essentially falls to Japan. They kind of hold out for quite a while, but the British forces surrender to Japan on Christmas Day in 1941, uh, the Christmas Day surrender. Merry Christmas, Hong Kong! Not a very Merry Christmas at all. Uh, The occupation was quite uh, brutal as... Japanese occupations tended to be during the Second World War. They really get off easy. Yeah, and I suppose we won't really go into details as to... No. We're not talking about Hong Kong in general, so we won't really get into the details, but um, you can... But by by the end of the occupation, Japan had pretty much demolished parts of the wall city and used the stone from the walls to expand... The airport, Kai Tak Airport, yeah. So that's that's one thing that we didn't mention, actually, is that Kai Tak Airport uh, is no longer in use, has also been uh, moved, demolished... But, um, yeah, Kowloon Wall City stood very, very close to the one airport in Hong Kong at the time. Like and unsafely close. Unsafely close, yeah. Yeah, and Japan demolished, I think it was the, the actual wall surrounding the city yeah, itself. Yeah, yeah. So, so now the, it's not really a walled city anymore. It's, just it's a, not really a fortress anymore. It's just a uh, bunch of buildings. We, we, we haven't said, but it, it, we're talking about 200 metres by 100 metres, right? This, the plot isn't isn't particularly large. Yeah, the footprint of the Empire State Building is 7,500 square metres, and Kowloon Wall City was 24,000 uh, square metres, so about three times the size of the footprint of the Empire State Building. So not a very big area. So three New York City blocks. Okay. Like, it's, it's, remarkably, it's remarkably small. So we're talking about a very, very, very small area here, like, into which a lot, a lot of people are are coming and establishing housing settlements and farms and all sorts of stuff. At this point, it's not even walled anymore. You're, you just all that really remains are some squatters, um, and the the yamen, the kind of city hall, which is now the old people's home in the middle of the city, and not much else. Sounds fun. An old folks' home and some people in tents. Yeah. And where this idea of of Kowloon Wall City is this kind of viper's nest or cuckoo's nest of cuckoo's nest is that the term? That's what the, that's what the British used used to call it. Like you know, that's cuck- lame. Because like Chinese cuckoos, cuckoos in your British colony, <laughs> <laughs> the old Chinese cuckoos. Nest. Got a couple of Chinese cuckoos in the old British colony. If you know what I mean, I assume that you don't. Oh God. Uh, anyway, the, the point when, when the, the levels of crime and stuff start really ramping up and the population density starts ramping up is after the Chinese Civil War, which is between the Communist Party and the Nationalists. Um, and this results, obviously, in, in Mao coming to power in the People's Republic of China. Cultural revolution. Being founded, revolution. The Nationalist government flee to, to Taiwan and are still there. Shout out to the lads in Taiwan. Yep. 
And, and a lot of people flee to Hong Kong. Uh, I say a lot of these refugees were from the, the, the nationalist side of the war. About 2,000 of them move into this allegedly Chinese bit of Hong Kong and they just wouldn't leave. Among those fleeing communism were uh, some interesting characters. So the Doctors, oh, dentists. Sure, yeah. Let's start, start with the good know, stuff. Yeah. Restauranters. Yeah. Entrepreneurs, workers. All sorts of people. But the problem with these people is that they brought their trades with them, but they weren't uh, licensed to operate in Hong Kong, uh, British-controlled Hong Kong. So a lot of these people, like, uh, for some reason, I'm not sure if you know why, Joe, but there was a huge amount of dentists. Like, I think this, yeah. this crops up yeah, again and again o- when you're always, reading about I think it's just the dentists are expensive unless you go to an unregulated one down some alleyway in Wall City, and he's surprisingly cheap. Yeah, so... <laughs> So these people would would come from China and would uh, sort of set themselves up in the Kowloon Walled mm. City and then would sort of start practicing their trade under no supervision whatsoever. Yep. There's an episode of 99% Invisible, a podcast which I think we're all big fans of. Kind of an architecture and design podcast. And one of the people they interview on that podcast is a former resident and says that one of the things that the restaurants would do at the time would be to kill your meal in front of you yeah. to show you that you were having... Fresh food. You know, the animal that it being was. served fresh, yeah, real meat. Uh, yeah, so to kind of bring out a chicken or a duck or a fish or whatever it was and, and kind of like lop its head off in front of you. Like, it, it's not a dog, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I need to weigh in on that, actually. So we're, we're in the 1950s and there's this flow of... Um, flow of humanity into this very, very uh, tightly packed region. And part, part of the reason that they were able to do so was Hong Kong was a little bit nervous of Mao. He had ju- he'd just done a, a bunch of killing. So they really didn't want to piss off Mao by waking up this whole controversy about the wall city, about whether it's a little enclave of China, whether it belongs to the Hong Kong uh, or to the, to the British administration. So... They really didn't want to be seen to be administering it too strictly, which is why this kind of reputation for it being left to its own devices uh, it came from. But it is not quite true to say that there was no police in the wall city or that city rules didn't apply or anything like that. It's just that they were only applied very, very gingerly and occasionally. So the, there was a police report in 1955 where they, they didn't want to change the city but they did want to just have an idea of what was happening in there so they they did basically an audit of the Kowloon Wall City in 1955 and what they found was seven casinos 11 brothels 13 dog meat shops 154 opium dens and one strip club and on the dog meat when Hong Kong uh, people from the island and people from 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 other areas of Kowloon when they wanted cheap dentistry or dog meat or, you know, lots of opium, it was the uh, the wall city to which they turned. They they went in on that basis. So you can see the kind of place that this, that this wall city is becoming, I guess. That gives you a, quite a good idea of, of the sort of place that you're looking at. It's important to say some of the people who fled communism were um, became rather unsavory characters. So like there, there was a party called the Kuomintang, who were a, kind of a nationalist party. And 14 members of that group went on to found the notorious 14K Triad Society, which is now the second biggest triad society in the world. Um, and they were based out of the Wall City, Kowloon Wall City, and basically ran a lot of the brothels and the drugs and the gambling. The Sun Yi On Triad were also, I think they're now the biggest triad society in the world, and they're, they're also pretty heavily invested in this very small bit of land where rules are lax and a lot of the rules they would enforce themselves so these these two triads pretty much from from the 1950s onwards and and even earlier in some accounts ran all of these different uh, criminal operations and they're very much the kinds of things that you'd expect of any kind of mafia or triad or yakuza or or whatever the group might be uh, a lot of uh, racketeering a lot of loan sharking prostitution drugs but uh, just on the, the two groups the 14k they are now quite under the radar they're a lot less public they're a lot less um a lot less organized than they used to be however the sun yeon seem to be still in the headlines quite a lot uh, i was actually just looking through news pieces on these guys just to show you what the level of of bad dude we're dealing with sun yeon also means the 
New Righteousness and Peace Commercial and Industrial Guild. That's the other name for them. That's quite the name. In uh, 1986, a policeman who was also a member of the Sun Yeon Triad, he uh, flipped the boss, basically gave up the boss to the authorities. And when the authorities then uh, raided the boss's office, they found a total list of uh, Sun Yeon members. It's a rookie mistake. Which is a real bad day for the gang. And in 2009, uh, one of their bosses was hit with a car and hacked up with beef knives, is, was what I read, uh, in front of the Shangri-La Hotel in Kowloon. And, you know, we, we've all been to, to Hong Kong, and uh, it's real nice. Sure. Uh, Kowloon is where I stayed. It was around the corner mm. from where I stayed. Uh, and I was there only a year after this. So this is, they're, they're still going, and it's they're, they're still a going concern. Right. In 1950, there was a fire, which reduced a lot of the city to ashes, because... There wasn't electricity, um, so people were using lots of candles and kerosene stoves and stuff, so fire was inevitable. One of the, the beautiful pictures I've seen is of the Tin Hao Temple. This was this, this is constructed in 1951. Uh, Tin Hao was kind of a popular uh, sea goddess in, in the Canton and Hong Kong regions of the Chinese world. And 99% invisible cover this to kind of tell the story of how they built netting over the temple which is a you know a two-story temple but by this point into the 50s and 60s the squatters huts are being replaced by high-rise apartment blocks going up to 12 or 14 stories yeah. and the temple was being dwarfed by the and they only couldn't go any higher joe it's 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 very important to note they couldn't go any higher than i think it's 13 C- floors because of the airplanes they get hit by planes yeah. Which yeah. isn't a concern in most places. But they also didn't have any waste disposal because it wasn't administered by anyone. No, no sanitation and no running water most of the time. A lot of waste went out the windows. And so this temple had built a, a net over itself, which led to a really strange set of lighting uh, scenarios. On the on the administration thing, actually, there was waste collection. There was uh, the city did organize these yellow, sorry, not yellow, orange buckets that were everywhere around the city that people would dump things into. But crucially, the buckets were quite small, and people just weren't really in the habit of it, so they just chuck stuff out the windows as well. Uh, so it wasn't that there was no administration per se. It's just that it was laissez-faire. Very light touch. Yeah, and that, that is a phrase I've seen used, which seems to be a bit of an understatement. By this point in the 60s, when you've got these, um, you end up at about 350 10-plus story high buildings on a plot less than 200 by 100 metres. Um, essentially, it's a very striking image, and essentially the city has become walled again, but this time walled with tower blocks. No space between them, little alleyways and streets, but no real, you know, you wouldn't fit a car in there. It's very strange, actually. If you haven't seen images, I'd, we'd highly recommend that you look It really stands out. It looks almost like a like a cube, like a, just a, a one big block. I've heard people call it a Borg cube. A Borg cube. It's like a Borg cube with lots of crummy balconies. Yeah. And all the balconies have bars on the yeah. windows because that was a thing. Uh, you've got washing lines, you've got people, like families living in single rooms. And this, this is when we start to reach the population density high point. You know, you're, you're getting to about 30,000 people in this tiny warren of interlocking, interweaving alleyways and, and ladders and rooftops. And there's some great uh, there's some great YouTube videos that underline that, as well as, you know, there's, there was 33,000 or, or 50,000, depending on who you believe, at, at living there at the peak. There was a lot of businesses there, a lot of one-person businesses, manufacturing. There was uh, noodle factories. There was fish processing plants, all very, very small scale, all very, very poor hygiene. But um, because the, the costs were so low and the regulation was basically non-existent or at least non-enforced, it became a huge center of, of commerce in this way, as well as all of the, the illegal things like the opium dens and the prostitution and so on. There's a quote from a Daily Mail article about, like, written 20 years afterwards where they say, food processors freely admit that they moved it to the city to benefit from low rents and seek refuge from health inspectors. That's what you want in your food processing. Yeah, I have a comparison here, actually, uh... Just just to give you an idea, and again, we're saying we're, we're reaching the peak here of the, the population density for which this place has become legendary now. So you, you've got 1.2 million people per square kilometer. Now, that can be kind of a hard number to, to quantify in your head per square kilometer. 
But to give you a comparison, uh, Manhattan today is about 27,000 people per square kilometer. So that should give you a, a bit of an idea of just how densely packed with just bodies this place was. It was. I think it's 46 times more dense than Manhattan is, is basically. 46 times more dense than Ma- Manhattan, yeah. And Manhattan so, does feel a little, a little closed in, so. It does, it does. It's, it's not exactly a city known for uh, its, you know, wide and, open and spaces. And to be fair, even Hong Kong isn't. Hong Kong's quite a cozy city, like personal space becomes less important there because it's just not available. This but this is, is this is something else entirely, yes. I think we're going to take a quick break here and we'll just come back with the last the last maybe 30 years or so of the Kowloon Wall City before it gets demolished. So Mark, I believe you have a couple of uh, first-hand accounts from the uh, Hong Kong police at this time. Yeah, I found this great website called, uh, just given the credit, City of Darkness. Uh, it was a book also uh, talking about the Kowloon Wall City. And they have these first-hand accounts from police officers working there. And they were describing the delicate balance between the authority of the, the police and the administration and also the triads. And the triads are, you know, arguably had a lot more authority within the Wall City. So this, this is from uh, a police officer who was present in the 1970s. Police officers generally worked in pairs and they just patrolled, uh, really. That was all they were there to do, was just kind of wander around. And largely they went unnoticed, which is part of the reason that people talk about there was no police there. There was police there, but there was only two of them amongst several tens of thousands of people. And if a policeman was maybe 100 meters from you, you would have no way of seeing them because of the nature of the the alleyways and the stairways and so on. So from the 1970s, there was one important catch. Addicts could only be caught, arrested, and taken in for questioning if they were actually caught carrying drugs. Being an addict alone was not enough. Aware of this, the triad operators, safe in the knowledge that the Wall City provided ideal cover, came up with the simple plan, rather than just selling addicts small packets of heroin, they would spread the word and open a temporary clinic where the addicts could queue up for their shot and then leave carrying nothing. So that to me is very symbolic of the whole thing. It's this awkward workaround that there is, you know, there's a little bit of a regulation, but we'll, we'll find a way around it. And then from the 1980s, when I first took up my assignment, the city was still thriving and everything was very much out in the open. It's become so quiet these days. There were prostitutes soliciting on the streets. They usually had their regular spots. There were child prostitutes as well. Now only the older ones are left. Yes, there were quite a few goings on then that are probably best left untold. For example, (laughs) a colleague arrested some men for possession of bombs brought in from China. No one seems to have heard anything about this. Um, and I, I won't, I won't keep going reading these first-hand accounts, but the, the guy goes into a little bit of depth about how if, if the police were told, look, there, there's been an actual crime that we really need to solve, they would basically go to the triad head and say, look, you're gonna need to give this guy up. And lo and behold, the guy would come in, confess and say, oh, sorry, yeah, it was me. Uh, so in this kind of uh, partnership way with the triads, they would generally get their man when they absolutely needed to get their man. But um, the real authority was definitely with the triads. Cool. Well, that, that all sort of waned through the 70s and 80s. And you ended up, a lot of people described the last years of the, the city as being just like any other tight-knit community. Like most people who lived there weren't involved in crime and weren't involved mm. in triads. They just needed cheap rent. They were recent immigrants or whatever. Yeah, I should I should mention actually that I, I did interview Greg Gerard, who um, took some photos of the Kowloon Wall City around this time. He's that website, Canadian. City of Darkness, that's, that's him, right? Oh, is it? Yeah, that's, oh, his, wow, that, cool. that's actually his website. Yeah, that's his book. There's a book. Yeah, he, he said that one of the things that he stressed when I was talking to him was that there was a, a very tight-knit sense of community, like you mentioned. There was kind of a lot of family and a lot of... A lot of people in there that just did not in, get involved in any kind of criminal activity and just wanted to make a living and just saw this as a, as a cheap, convenient place to live, like to start their lives in Hong Kong. It, it wasn't all like this this den of inequity kind of thing. It wasn't all like drug dealers and triads and prostitutes and that no, sort it's, of thing. It's, it was, it's, there were a lot of, a huge amount actually of just working class families. It's like any, any rough make a living area that working class people end up living in, just amplified. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. like a project in 
Baltimore or like, uh, you know, uh, somebody has seen the wire. Somebody has seen the wire. It, it's, it's, um, you know, the, the places that lots of poor people end up living in, their lives are plagued by the crimes that can be gotten away with in those areas. Mostly they don't want that, but they live with it. It's a reflection of the attentions of the administration more than it is anything with the people themselves necessarily. Exactly. So anyway, getting back to the administration, we're in 1986. Sir Edward Yude is the governor of Hong Kong, and he wanted it all sorted out. Uh, a chief motivation <laughs> that sounds ominous. was that they were... Very well sorted out. He, sorted out. He, he was Welsh, actually. Sorted out. He had signed the joint declaration with China that finalised what would happen to Hong Kong at the end of the 99-year lease that they'd signed with the New Territories. And what the solution that they came up with was that in 1997, Hong Kong would be handed back to China and would become the special administrative region it is today. So he was concerned about leaving this squalid little stain on the territory that the Chinese could use as propaganda to kind of point out how rubbish the British were to Chinese people. That was his main motivation. Um, as far as I can tell. So his solution was to make all the Chinese people homeless? <laughs> Tear down their house, it looks terrible. No, no, they, they didn't make them homeless in the end. But the, the, oh. the mission was so top secret, they couldn't label it secret because then it would have given away the exceedingly sensitive game they were playing with China. But also it would have made wily residents of Hong Kong move to the walled city in order to co- get compensation when they were kicked out again. Mm. So they were going to compensate people. So the correspondence was merely labelled confidential. And then people, people don't spy on confidential correspondence. This all comes from a South China Morning Post article that they did on, on the 20th anniversary of the demolition of the city. Yeah, it's worth reading, actually. Uh, that, it's it's that very good. It's, good. it's a good, long article. In 87, the final plans from the city were announced. This time China was on board. So it actually happened. The clearance, whoever took, it took 1,997 days in three fraught stages to clear the people out. You know, you got some people who were happy to leave when you offered them a, a house that wasn't in a, in a den of iniquity. You got some people who were very resistant. And like even on the last days before demolition, you had some families really reluctant to leave. But in 1992, I think it was, they actually started demolishing the tower blocks and clearing away this uh, incredibly dense, anarchic, organic, um, self-determining bit of of human architecture and, and society. So nowadays, Kowloon Wall City doesn't exist, obviously, anymore. There is a park there now that's called the Kowloon Wall City Park. So I'm currently standing beside what remains of the south gate of the Wall City in what's now known as Kowloon Wall City Park. It's a beautiful summer evening. There are people jogging and couples walking around. Uh, and if you listen close enough, you might just be able to make out crickets and even a basketball game going on in the background. There are manicured lawns around and bonsai trees and ponds and even drinking fountains. And apart from a few plaques and preserved monuments, you might never know what this place used to represent. It's ironic as this, the space now is sort of an escape for local people from the hustle and bustle of the city and their small apartments um, as it's surrounded on all sides by skyscrapers and high-rises. It couldn't really be more of a contrast to what the place used to be. So you wouldn't really know if you visited today and you didn't, you kind of weren't aware of the history. It's just a, a normal looking park really to be honest it's it's nothing it's kind of a strange of it's kind of a strange one just thinking about it how n- normally the way it goes is that somebody takes a field or some beautiful park whatever and then builds you know some kippy concrete awfulness on it and everyone's sad about that but in this case people have torn down the concrete kip and put a park there instead but anything i've seen has always been a bit kind of you know wistful uh, and almost you know, regretting that they tore it down to put a park in its place. And I think it was just because it was such a unique thing that there's there's really nothing like this place that has ever been before and probably, ideally, ever will be in the future. Well, it was a unique set of circumstances yeah. made it happen and they're unlikely to replicate ever again. 
Exactly. But that does bring us on what you what you mentioned, Mark, that does bring us on to uh, sort of cultural depictions now of, of the Kowloon Walled City, which is, as you said, kind of an almost legendary place at this point, especially now that it doesn't mm. exist anymore. When I wrote that article, the interview with the photographer, a lot of people were sort of saying, oh, we should we should go visit this place. We should go mm-hmm. have a look. And a lot of people don't even realize that it doesn't exist anymore. Sample some opium. Uh, so City of Darkness is that book. City of Darkness is that book. Yeah. And uh I would encourage anybody to check it out if they're more interested in this in this topic. There's a more recent one as well, the Revisited, City of Darkness Revisited. This is a kind of an updated, yeah. 20 years on kind of version. And you, it's funny that you mentioned, Mark, that there's nowhere really like it anymore. It's actually been recreated in part in uh, Japan, oh, yeah. which is very strange, uh, in a place called Kawasaki Warehouse uh, in Kawasaki in, in uh, just outside of Tokyo. It's just kind of a recreation, like almost like an uh, amusement park, like a theme park kind of thing where you just walk through and sort of bend down under electrical wire and sort of, you know, there's graffiti and so they've romanticized this sort of it. thing. You can poke your head inside, you know, mock dwellings and st- stuff like and I th- that. And I think I think that was featured in that, that short documentary. The Wall Street Journal, yes. City yeah. of Imagination, which is on YouTube, which shows that it shows a guy visiting that um that arcade and he'd lived there for a bit so he was kind of going yep this is this is it (laughs) uh we also see it represented in call of duty black ops (laughs) uh as a place to to shoot people and there's a there's a game developer now is building a game where you play a cat who wanders through Kowloon Walled City? Apparently, you can find a couple of articles, that, a couple of samples cool. of that. It's not released yet because apparently you could you could get across the city. You get across, yeah. You get from one end to the other without even touching the ground through sort of various networks of balconies and ladders and that sort of thing. Like the place was so tightly woven and so so interconnected that yeah, you could. I, I imagine playing a cat in in it's, that it's, kind it's of environment would be quite interesting. Uh, so we have Jackie Chan's nineteen ninety three movie Crime Story. Yeah, also features the 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 somewhat demolished Wall City. It's actually set during the demolition. I think. Oh, cool. Uh, oh, wow. It's a part way through the demolition, so there are certain there are explosion sequences and stuff like that. So Jackie Chan kind of jumps off a building as another building explodes or something like that. I think it's a clip that I saw, which is actually the demolition of the, of the city itself. In order to keep the, the budget down, they just use a, the, <laughs> they use an exploding <laughs> city. Jackie into the middle of it. <laughs> All the best, Jackie. That guy is a madman. Exactly. <laughs> we only have one take of this, so uh, better get it right, Jackie. <laughs> also, one of the most famous depictions, I think, is in uh, the Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yeah. Uh, movie Bloodsport, where Kumite. Kumite. Uh, the Kowloon Walled City hosts a, I think it's one of the first MMA tournaments, or what would go on to become MMA was sort of illegal fighting at the time, and John claude Van Damme travels to Hong Kong to participate in this sort of shady uh, fighting tournament, and there's a there's a great clip which I'm going to insert here about uh, him and his buddy being introduced to the Walled City by a local. Here it comes, man, the Wall City. Not a place for outsiders. You are in Hong Kong, but you are about to cross an invisible border into mainland China. No joke, man. It's a rundown piece of no man's land in the middle of a tourist paradise. It goes way back to the old lease agreement between Great Britain and China. Once you step out of the sunlight into the narrow corridors, it's time to protect your nuts, guys. And then the Kowloon Wall City also featured in the Bourne trilogy, in the Bourne Supremacy, I Does think, it? specifically. Yes, the quote from the book is, the walled city of Kowloon has no visible wall around it. Oh, just the but book it then. it is as clearly defined not, as not if the the, there were one made of high, hard steel. It is instantly sensed by the congested open market that runs along the street in front of the row of dark, run-down flats. Shacks haphazardly posted on top of one another, giving the impression that any moment, the entire blighted complex will collapse under its own weight leaving nothing but rubble where elevated rubble had stood. So there, there, there's Robert Ludlum's take on, on a place that no longer exists. Yeah. And it's also kind of inspired a lot of different movie settings. Mm. Uh, so it was, I, I believe, the the Narrows, it's called, uh, in Batman yeah. Begins, uh, that was inspired by uh, Cowden Wall City, also sort of sci-fi dystopian films such as Ghost in a Shell and Blade Runner and more recently the, the Dread movie. Uh, yeah. Uh, all have settings that are kind of inspired by this dense tightly packed urban jungle kind of setting yeah and, and there is there is footage out there I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes of just a guy walking around with a camcorder and it feels like a dystopian science fiction novel or science fiction movie it does. It just um i was gonna say that when i when i look at pictures of the whole complex from the outside it looks like somebody filled a box 
with, I don't know, like cereal or something like that. Cereal and like biscuits and coins, just random crap. And then just pulled up the box and it all held together in exactly the shape of the box. But like you can kind of see it shuddering and swaying and you don't know if it's going to fall or not. That's that's what it looks like. It's uh, this massive, many portaled, amorphous box cube filled with filled with humans that's quite an apt description i think we should probably wrap it up there yeah 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 all right so that is uh kowloon walled city so that is our episode for today uh this is the end of our first season so if you'd like to see more episodes if you'd like to hear more episodes of 80 days you can let us know you can get in contact with us at 80 dayspodcastcom you can also follow us on twitter at 80 days podcast and facebook Anything else we want to say? Just uh, if there's anything you'd like to hear about in season two, maybe let us know. It's been quite a run. We hope we hope you enjoyed this first season. We look forward to hearing your feedback. And if there's any places you think we should be exploring and, and talking about, let us know. Hey, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody, for listening this season, especially if you stuck with us all the way through. You can also really, really help us out by rating us on iTunes and leaving us a positive review. That'd be fantastic for our visibility. Mark, can you tell people where they can find you on the internet? Yep, uh, I'm at uh, MarkBoyle86 on Twitter, and I also have a blog uh, called The Toner of Leak. And Joe? And you can find me on time2burn.com, where burn is B-Y-O-R-N-E. You can find my website at LukeJKelly.com and on Twitter at, at the Luke J. Kelly. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening, and we'll see you guys next season. Bye-bye. Bye. It's been a blast. Oh, Jesus, Joe. What the hell is that? Do you think you're, you think you're a Hollywood man? Is I that do, a joke? Do, yeah. You're a Hollywood boy. Been a blast, I swear. So do you I, wanna, I wanna apologize you wanna for the listeners. That? For that. I, I think we leave that in. I think we shame <laughs> Joe with this. Leave that whole thing in. Anyway. Anyway.